Hello, my name is Dr. Deborah Fur Holden, and welcome to At the Forefront. Welcome to At the Forefront with Dr. Deb. I'm your host, Deborah Fur Holden. I'm here with one of my favorite people on the planet, Dr. David Bakunle. I've had the great honor and privilege of knowing this good brother for about a decade now. We met when he was. Uh, is contemplating his doctoral studies, um, which he ultimately completed at Johns Hopkins University, literally standing in the building that overlooked the community that you uh, grew up in. David is a Baltimore native. He is a drummer and a storyteller, um, in addition to be being a public health professional, and to me, really a rising star in both the space of art and health. Welcome, David. Thank you, Dr. Harlan. I really appreciate it. So you're doing a postdoc now. You're at Morgan State University. Yeah, uh, it's 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 been a lot of lessons with that postdoc. Um, lessons in how to manage different relationships with different entities. Uh, you know, being a doc student was very um, sheltered. I think you would agree, very sheltered. Just had to do the work and, and be done. But then. Once you're in a postdoc and you have more of a direct connection to the people who are funding your, your work, uh, you certainly have the answer to them. And there are a lot of, I think, philosophical challenges that I faced. Uh, but it's been a great experience uh, being at Morgan at HBCU. Uh, it really is kind of a homecoming in a very existential sense. Like my mother went to Morgan, my father went to Morgan. Uh, my godfather was professor of social work at Morgan, so Morgan is in my blood. Yeah. Uh, so it's really good to be able to continue that tradition there and to really have the freedom of space and time to do a lot of the work that I do. Uh, it allows me to just be fluid in my scheduling and just fluid in, in what I do, which is awesome. You know, no day is the same. It's allowed me to explore be very exploratory and, and very deliberate and just challenging how we perceive health what we do to address health the systems that have guided public health and to really meet and connect with people who feel similarly about the need for creativity in public health that's been the most fun part and the support that i've gotten along the way has been has been incredible so before we get into um, more in the world of storytelling, something just came up for me when you were sharing, which is that you went to Johns Hopkins University, which is also my alma mater, right. which also happens to be one of the whitest places on earth. That is correct. Inside of those walls. Yeah. I left there. We were at single-digit numbers. And this isn't a site against Johns Hopkins. It's just a statement of what's so. But when I left there, they had single digits of tenure system black faculty in the School of Public Health. Mm -hmm. And at the time, in its 100-year history, it only had one black full professor um, who had reached tenure. Mm -hmm. Those numbers have shifted slightly. I know, I believe there are an additional three um, uh, full tenure system faculty. Don't quote me on that. That's yeah, not the yeah, point. Yeah. The point is, it was a very white place and mm -hmm. a place oftentimes that the people who live in Baltimore don't feel like they have access to. Right. And then you go, you know, just a few miles um, um, down, and then you get to Morgan State University, mm -hmm. which is one of the brownest places on earth. <laughs> right. And really is the home. We talked about this on another show, but it, they, the HBCU historically, and Morgan specifically, has filled such a vital need um, in the landscape in Baltimore, in Maryland, by educating some of our most promising black and brown students mm -hmm. who wouldn't get opportunities at places like Johns Hopkins. Right. How would you contrast what you got at Hopkins and what you got at Morgan? I'm sure there was value in both. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I appreciate it and appreciate both of the experiences that I've had. So certainly Hopkins, when it comes to the study of public health as a science, is top flight, best of the best. So my education there is, is the best of the best. Uh, on top of that, really the opportunity to look at my city, my hometown, through a public health lens started there. Yeah. So certainly I had the stories from family, friends, colleagues. There were things that I could see with my own eyes as uh, to the challenges of Baltimore. But it wasn't until I started to acquire the language of public health and really able to see it um, from a macro level. I'm like, okay, that's what that's about. And really drawing a lot, connecting a lot of dots that I knew of but 
didn't have the opportunity to see the larger picture and how the systems created the outcomes that we're dealing with now. Uh, so I got all that at Hopkins. And, and even with my storytelling, the genesis of this foray into art and help started at Hopkins. I can never take that away from them. Tell me about <laughs> that. Yeah, so it, it started as it was my first year. It was uh, public mental health, so one of the required courses that I had to take to matriculate in mental health PhD. And my instructor, Debbie Agus, found out I was a storyteller. There was a, a talent show that happened. I love to be a show-off, so I decided to show off my talents of <laughs> storytelling and African drumming. Yeah. It, it went great. Yeah. Um, I think it allowed people to see another side of me, and honestly, mm-hmm. that became the dominant narrative at Hopkins. People, More people know me as a drummer and storyteller than they do as a researcher. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> and and I'm, I'm okay with that. Like The fact that I can say that shows um, the openness that can be created even in the widest of spaces. Yeah. I still remember the first day, um, the orientation, we were ninth floor Hampton House, uh, where I ultimately defended. So full circle, I love that. Uh, and I remember when it was my time to introduce myself. I look around the room, plenty of faculty in the room. I don't even know if you were in the room. You might have been in the room. Um, but people of color, me, you, and that was probably it. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and I'm and I look out the window of ninth floor. I mean, it's a beautiful. Anytime I get to look at Baltimore from an elevation, it's awesome. It's beautiful because you can see so much of the dynamic. In one image. Yeah. So you go to the top of, of Wall Street building. Yeah. And just and I did that like my first year. You know, I turn to my right, I see Inner Harbor. Yeah. All the Inner Harbor. I turn to my left, I see East Baltimore all the way to uh what used to be Francis Scott Key Hospital, Hopkins Baby now, where I was born. Uh so this dynamic of my of my city, my hometown, the place that I love, uh, in this one view. And and I got similar a similar vibe when there was an orientation and I said I look around this room, and I don't see a lot of people who look like me. So I came to Hopkins ready for a fight. Like, I knew Hopkins was big, bad Hopkins, and I I had certainly my perceptions of it uh, before I walked into the building, and I was ready to defend my blackness. I was ready to defend my city. I was ready to defend, defend, defend. And it started that day, and I said, I look around this room, and I don't see a lot of people who look like me. My goal is from 10 to 15 years from now, I walk back in this room, and I see more people who look like me. And that was my introduction to Department of Mental Health. Yeah, 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 yeah. How'd that go over? It went well. And that was that's one of the most surprising things about my experience. I was ready for people to challenge me on, you know, equity, inequities, races. I was ready for that fight, you know. And, and I felt like the 20, 23 years up to that was leading to this point to finally defend all this knowledge and wisdom that I acquired all that time. But what actually happened was like, you're right. It's almost like Light City all over again. It's like, I'm ready to fight you on this. And it's like, you know what? I agree. Help us change it. So I was like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. So, but, but, having, but having you and having, you know, not just all the professors of color, which was very helpful, obviously, but even, even the white folks. You know, I, I say mental health was the nicest of all the departments as far as from my perspective at, at Hopkins and in Bloomberg. And they never tried to limit my voice. They never tried to change my story. They allowed me to be who I was. And I think being in a space like that made all the difference. And and it's interesting because that's been a common narrative in my life uh, since middle school. So I went to a predominantly white school, Friends School of Baltimore, from middle and high school. Same thing. Mostly white kids, one of a handful of black kids there. Um, I was allowed to be myself and allowed to figure that out because, of course, I had the imposter syndrome, um, you know, my first exposure to assimilation, like, okay, should I be like these white kids? Should I be myself? You know, teenage angst, period. So all this stuff happened in this predominantly white institution, but they gave me the space to figure that out and yeah. ultimately be who I was when I left Friends at 18. Even at the University of Maryland, same thing. So for those four years from 18 to 22, had the space to be myself. And then Hopkins, which I didn't expect, was really allowed to be myself and find out what that means within public health as a science. And that's what took me to storytelling. So it, it so much of my career has been organic and it's been serendipity. And it's just been the universe, like you say, just aligning for a certain path to be taken. And it's awesome. I, I can't I can't be mad at that. Yeah. So you mentioned um, Dr. Deborah Agus, who is one of my, uh, you know, sort of favorite people, Shiro's, because I know she's been a big champion for um, behavioral health. She's a lawyer by training, so mm-hmm. she's interesting because she's bringing law and public policy and really deep compassion and commitment um, into the, the public health space 
And um, and you mentioned her, and you said uh, you were in a course with her, and mm-hmm. you were sh- going to share with us about where this kind of started for you, bringing something that yeah. is a part of you into your work. Yeah, yeah. So she she found out I was a storyteller uh, from Pia, the TA, who was also my office mate, and she asked me if I would be willing to go to a recovery center in Southwest Baltimore and teach the client storytelling. And I reluctantly agreed, not because I didn't think it was valuable, but because I was so in the mode of wanting to be just a researcher. Like, that's why I came to Hopkins. I want to be a top-flight public health researcher. Well, then let me take every opportunity to, that's presented to me to hone my craft as a researcher. Yes. But she insisted. Like, she insisted, and I said, okay, I'll do it. So, of course, I talked to my mother, who's also a storyteller, and actually she started after me. I'm the one that started. I, Your I, mom started storytelling, so I've been um, giving alternative. You've been giving facts. her way too much credit. And no, I but it's all good. No, no. You come from a long line, a long tradition. So, so I started storytelling when I was about nine years old. Gotcha. Um, you know, I, I worked under Mary Carter Smith, and you know, my mother would. So actually, Mary Carter Smith would pick me up from elementary school. She would drive me over to Morgan. We would do her radio show, and then I would go over her house until my mother picked me up. So. You know, eventually I went on to middle school. My sister was still in elementary school. So now she started to do that with my sister. Um, So we, my sister and I are the ones that got into storytelling first. But my mother, being the one who was transporting us, she eventually got into it as well. I would say she's definitely taken it to an incredible level, you know, as a storyteller, as a a, a singer, as a community activist. All those things are totally true. But she technically started after us. <laughs> but anyway, anyway, so we went over to Recovering Community, uh, Southwest Baltimore, Fulton Avenue. We met with the executive director. We met with the clinical director. Um, you know, Debbie Agus connected us. So of course, the first big hurdle was I'm a Hopkins student. Yeah. You know, I know I know what the name carries around Baltimore. Uh, so we first had to make it abundantly clear this is not a research study. This is just practice we're just offering this to the clients i'm not recording anything this is just for their benefit so once that level of trust was established then the next big hurdle was to meet the clients themselves and to say here is our pitch can do we have the uh, the permission to work with you all so that night it was me my mother and my aunt val and we brought my aunt val because she's also in recovery you know she's well known in baltimore for her story just her her recovery uh, and she's just a great storyteller. Yeah. So that was she was really the one that could vouch for us. Yeah. It's like I know y'all and I know them. They're good peoples. And it was a one. Even from that moment, it was great because people were sharing their, their stories that night with us. Yeah. Um. There really was like no feeling out period. It's like we got into it pretty quickly. So we kept going back, and you know the class is you know term system. So the class only for two months. Uh, only did it a handful of times, but then we just kept going. Like we liked it, we enjoyed it, so we kept going. That was that was our Thursday night ritual from six thirty to eight o'clock. That's where you found us. And aside from the changes that we could see in the clients, I mean, those that would never talk. Period. You know, people. One there was one guy, Mr. Charles, who was fresh off of twenty six years in prison, so he would come to our uh, sessions, wouldn't say a word, but he would listen. After a while, he would say a couple words here and there. One too long after that, we couldn't shut him up. Yeah. So we had all of these experiential moments that showed us that creating a space for people to tell their story, knowing that they would not be judged, knowing that their stories would be appreciated, and then the extra skill that my mother and I brought, uh, being Virtues Project facilitators, we could extract these positive qualities that we heard in the story. So just like we think about the characters and we think about their journey in a story, we can do that with, with people. And we say, you know what? This is a virtue that you exuded in that moment, and that should be recognized yeah. and appreciated. And th- so this is all stuff that we're piecing together as we're going. So it's like an iterative process, but in the moment. So we didn't have a hypothesis. We didn't have anything. We just wanted, let's just do it, see if they let us do it, and then just take it from there. So all these things, so I'm, I'm taking the knowledge from Hawkins, all these public health terms and concepts that I'm learning during the day, and I'm seeing how they're manifesting on this one week a night, you know, uh, one night a week uh, session that we're doing, it's like, there's something to this. Uh, and that's that's what I told you. You know, like, there's something to this, and I want to explore. Now, I appreciate you saying don't do it for my dissertation, because I'd still be there. If I did exactly. that, I'd still be there if I was and trying the to. the best dissertation. It's a done dissertation. Exactly. And, and I'm actually on a, someone's dissertation committee, and that's exactly what I told yeah. him. Yeah, and don't ever forget it. It's so true. It's so true. Said, feel free. Change the world after you defend. It's so true. It's so true. But anyway, so. Yeah, so, yeah. so 
those were the beginnings of a question that I discovered while going through the process of becoming a researcher. Yeah. And, you know, while I always had a love for tobacco oil density, that's what got me into social science research and certainly is an example of a larger uh, systemic issue. This was just something I found so intriguing and so fun that I couldn't let it go. And it wasn't just my personal interest, but the interest that was being garnered by other people. You know, so again, a Dr. Carlson, you know, who does cognition is interested in, you know, the mental health of older individuals. I don't even know how she found out about it, but she found out about it and wanted to come see it. So now I'm bringing Hopkins professors to this relatively dingy row house in West Baltimore to speak to, you know, people in recovery, addicts, which they also like to say, tell their stories. So I'm I'm showing the the expertise and the insight and wisdom of the lay people to these research. So I, I saw these opportunities to become a bridge between research institutions or just institutions at large and the people. And that is a role that I, I wear with pride more than so I love, you know, as as you know, as harsh a critics as you say they are, the fact that I was able to get the approval of the people is what I value more than anything yeah. else. If they vouch for me, good. Yeah. You know, I'm good. And Baltimore is just like Flint like that. Word gets around, people talk. And even now, it blows my mind how much my name has carried in the past few years. It's not that I'm trying. I'm just you know, like I said, I don't like being called an expert. I just have something to share. Yeah. And I'm sharing my experience and sharing the things that I've done. But people are listening. They're telling that story. And other people want to hear it, too, which is a beautiful thing. Yeah. It's awesome. So what does it look like? What if I were there? If I, if I could feel it and taste it and touch it and smell it, what's the experience like working in 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 these spaces mm-hmm. in Southwest Baltimore and in other places? It's... It's very familial. It's it's like being around your family, uh, because so many of the stories I know I could relate to somebody in my family or in my circle that has similar stories. And what was good about the video that I showed and it reminded why I think I was so emotional. Number one, I missed them. I, I genuinely missed them. They've gone different places. Uh, they're doing their things. They're still in recovery, but I, I miss the camaraderie and the friendship and family that I had at Rick, especially because that was where it all began. Um, but the different faces of, you know, substance abuse, the different faces of trauma. You know, some of the people in the video, you know, had great lives. Like, and they'll admit, like, hey, I was a Boy Scout. You know, my family, you know, my parents were there. They were, you know, and yet they still engage in these behaviors for, for a myriad of reasons, personal, peer pressure, societal, like all of that was valid. So it, it reminded me that there is no one face of the challenges that we see in public health. Yeah, sure. And really the only way we stop ourselves from stereotyping or, or perceiving a certain configuration of human to, to be more susceptible to these certain challenges is if we hear the stories. Because if I looked at their face, I would say, oh, I know your story. No, I don't. Yeah. No, I don't. But if I give you the space to tell me, then there's this, this depth of insight and understanding that changes how you address these things. Even the way, you know, the language itself changes. You know, and I've become much more particular about the language that I, that I, that I use when it comes to certain aspects of public health. Um, even, you know, and I learned this from you and I learned this from the experiences of being at Rick, you know. It's, it's humbling. It's so relaxing and so comfortable. Um, no matter where I've gone, it's the people want their stories to be heard. Yeah. So I think when they come across somebody who says, I'm here for you and your stories, it's like, thank you. Like, they're grateful above all else. And for me, I just want to honor their gratitude by making sure I am uh, sharing their story as authentically as possible, as closely to the way that they've told their story to me as I can. Um, And that is humbling, and just I'm, I'm grateful that I'm able to be that person. And encourage other people to be that people too, because this is not meant to be a one man show. Like everyone could do this, and that's the beauty of it. It's simple. It's just intentionally listening, intentionally telling your story, honoring the insight and wisdom of other people. But people, yeah, it's, it's, that's what it's like. It's 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 therapy. It's healing. You know, just like you know, talking to anyone can be just make you feel better. Like. My aunt, my great aunt Charlotte, she she's been my grandmother. Uh, my grandmother passed before I was born, so her younger sister has been that grandmother figure in my life. And as I've gotten older, uh, talking to her has become so much more satisfying for my soul because obviously the life that she's lived, she's like eighty eight years old, 
Um, she was married to my great uncle for 65. So when it comes to marriage, she is like the definition of good marriage because <laughs> they lasted for 65 years before he passed away. Yeah. So anytime I get to talk to her about like, how'd you live with that man for 65 years, <laughs> you know, and, and you know, she says, Hey, it wasn't easy, but it's like, okay, I feel better because you know, someone who has lived that life and I'm trying to live now is giving me their wisdom. So it makes me more encouraged that I can do this too. Yeah. That's how that felt. And these were, and, and the part that always made me happy is like, God, if, if this were anybody else, perhaps, they wouldn't give you the time of day. But I'm doing everything I can to elevate your stories and show people how intelligent and just the geniuses that you all are. Yeah. Because that's what it was. Everyone in that room was a genius. And they, they really were. So how about you treat us? Tell me a story. <laughs> okay. Um, so I'll tell this story just because of, of um, because it's directly related to my research. Uh, so this is the story that I tell uh, the participants in my story mapping session. Uh, so the way I'm using it right now is to uh, use a story to elicit stories. And this story covers some of the main components of Future Baltimore, which is the initiative I'm working on at Morgan. Uh, so uh, this, so when my sessions start, you know, first and foremost, I feed everybody because food, yes. food. Oh, yeah, no, that, that's, that's a big part of my budget. <laughs> feeding people, but it, it, it helps. That so that alone starts the camaraderie right there. Yeah, yeah. A lot of the residents know each other, which is good. But just being able to break bread together, it, it does a lot of the work for me before I even say anything. Just yeah. feeding people. Yep. Hey, it works every time. People come for the free food. They stay for the stories and the money. It's yeah. great. It works. It works for everybody. Yeah. So once everybody's comfortable giving them time to eat, you know, I introduce myself, and this is a story that I tell. So I ask people, how many of you have four wives? Usually it's some older guys like, yeah, I got four wives. <laughs> if, they, if, if we get that. But most people don't raise their hand. So, I, you know, I expect that. So then I start. There was a chief in a West African village, and he indeed had four wives. So his fourth wife was the youngest. She was the, the newest wife, and she was the most beautiful woman in the entire village. She was gorgeous. So just think of the most fine woman you've ever met in your life on top of that. Anything that the fourth wife wanted, she got. She wanted her nails done, it was done. She wanted her hair done, it was done. She wanted, she had an idea of a dress that she wanted. Oh, he made sure that all the artisans made it happen. So, her imagination was her reality because Chief made it happen for her. That's how much he loved her. His third wife was very beautiful, too. Like, honestly, not much of a difference between the third and fourth wife. They were both beautiful. Kind of just how you feeling that day. Um, and much like the fourth wife, she was dressed to death. Like, anything that she wanted, she got it. Like, she didn't have to ask for really anything. Like, he was, he was on point with the third wife, just made sure she always looked as beautiful as she could be. The second wife was his confidant. She was the right hand. She was the advisor. She, you know, was the secretary of state to the president. Like, this goes down? Cool. So he never made a decision on any level without her approval. Like, that's how much he trusted her with the decisions of, of his, of his uh, chiefdom. But his first wife, the oldest one, the one he was with the longest, most days he didn't even look at her. He was disgusted by her. He didn't give two dams about her. You know, a lot of times he thinks to himself, like, why did I marry her in the first place? Like, mm. nothing but regret. Like, nothing but regret and disappointment with her. So the chief got sick, and he went to all the healers. They did everything they could, um, but there was nothing they could do for him. He was going to die. It was an inevitability. It was just a matter of when, not if. And this is a man who's always been royalty. You know, everything has been so easy for him and now he's facing his mortality and he can't avoid it it's happening he was terrified so he went to his fourth wife and he told her baby i'm dying i'm dying i'm i'm, I'm gonna be unto death i'm gonna be transitioning to to the ancestral plane i ask you this question from the bottom of my heart will you go unto death with me he did not want to die alone and she said absolutely not <laughs> Nah, nah, I don't know what you think this is. Nah. <laughs> as soon as you hit the ground, I'm out of here. And he was so hurt because he gave her everything. It's like he put all that time and effort and money into this woman. And the one time he really needed her, nah, like 
no no empathy, no sympathy, nothing. Just like, Mm-mm, I'm done with you. Once you hit the ground, that's it. Till death do us part. We gonna part. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, real talk. She honored her commitment. So, you know. Uh, so he goes to the third wife. And he says, baby, I'm dying. I'm dying. I'm scared. I don't want to die alone. So I ask you, will you go on to death with me? And she says, so she always had to take it a step further. So she says, not only am I not going to go on to death with you, but as soon as you hit that ground, I'm marrying somebody else. So she already got the plan set up <laughs> for, the, for the next step. So he is so hurt. But, like, all this is just killing him. Like, he's already dying. And then this on top of that is just killing him even more. So he is hurt, he's distraught, but he moves on. He goes to his second wife, and he could really just cut through the BS with her. He was like, I'm about to die. I'm scared. Will you die with me? She's always very thoughtful with her responses. Like she she analyzes and is, is very, very thoughtful with her responses. So she said, as much as I want to, because she loved him, as much as I would like to do that, you know I can't. I can only go as far as the grave with you. And he understood that. He was like, he was still hurt. That didn't change how he felt, but he, he understood. But there was a faint voice in the corner of his ear that he heard, and it said two words, I'll go. I'll go. And when he found that voice, who did he find but his first wife? So this is the wife that he was disappointed with. This was the wife that he regretted. This was the wife he couldn't even imagine why he married her. This is the wife that he just gave no respect, no love to. But she was still willing after all of that willing to go on to death with the chief. And the reason we tell that story is because we all do have four wives. So our fourth wife is our body. We will give our body everything that it wants. Mm. <laughs> Maybe to a fault. Mm. But here's the deal. Once we die, it's gone. Yeah. It's gone. Yeah. The third wife represents our possessions, our wealth. We'll, hey, we'll, we'll accumulate possessions, we'll accumulate wealth, but as soon as we die, it's going to somebody else. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's going to like yeah, it's going to somebody else. You can't take it with you. Um, our second wife, or the second wife, represents our family and our friends. Uh, they can only go as far as the grave. They're not going in the ground with you. Um, like I've said before, you know, my grandmother when she was uh, transitioning, she said, "I don't want no hooping and hollering at my funeral because none of y'all jumping in there with me. Mm. Nobody jumped in there with her." <laughs> uh, and our first wife is our soul, our spirit, our aura, whatever you want to call it, that higher level representation of you. That's going to go with you unto death. That's going to be what transitions on to the next side. So the moral of the story is that as important as it is to take care of all your wives, because they all have value, they all have purpose, and they all bring something, don't forget that first wife. She was there in the beginning. She's going to be there in the end. She's going to be there in the next life. Mm. But that's the end of that story. Mm, so, I like it. Yeah, so that story, you know, that story, it's interesting. Like, all the stories that I use in, uh, you know, the research side or the practice side, they come, you know, these are stories that my mother's told. Because uh, she does a lot of spiritual stories. She does a lot of stories about, um, you know, higher levels of thinking, higher levels of being, things, you know, that's that's just her vibe. And every storytelling has that, like, their, their vibe, the things that they want to talk about. So, I can do the serious stories like that. You know, I like the funny stories because that allows me to use my energy. Um, you know, it's, it's all how you feel that day. You know, it's all about your audience, too, you know. But as you get comfortable with storytelling, uh, as you get to this level of professional storytelling, storytelling as they call it, you can, for lack of a better word, manipulate the audience however you want. So I can make the audience laugh if I want to. I can make the audience cry if I want to. It's really about what's the message that I want to deliver that day um, but my message is fairly consistent no matter what I do whether it's research side whether it's the practitioner side whether it's advocacy activism whatever the case may be it's about love and you know that sounds cheesy and schmoozy and all that kind of stuff like I get it but it, it, it is what we do in public health feels can feel like a thankless job yeah and when we think about the grand equation of life which is a grand equation there's more variables to this life, life thing that we can count. And we're trying to do our best to get the simplest version of that grand equation to help those who are most disadvantaged by life. You know, whether it's organic or whether it's man-made, much of it man-made, man-driven. Uh, and a lot of times the progress that we want to see is so slow that all the effort and input we put in, we may not even see it in our own lifetime. 
Yeah. Like we'll just have to trust that it happens, you know, once we're gone. Um, but that's all out of love, you know. We reflect the love of our family. We reflect the love of our neighborhood, of our city. You know, we reflect the love of our people. That's why we do this. It's a calling, you know. It's not a job. It's a calling. And you can't do this type of work where you experience or become exposed. It's almost like the forbidden fruit. You know, when Adam ate the forbidden fruit, his eyes were open. It's like when you get into public health so much, your eyes are going to be really open to just how messy the world can really really be yeah. and it can be discouraging and it's not and you're trying to figure it out but then you're living it at the same time so it's almost like the split personality um it's like you can figure out everybody else's problems but you can't figure out your own but, but that's not the true <laughs> you know those yeah. dynamics exist but you do it because you love because you want to experience love you want to give love you know that that's just a sustainable force that drives us as human beings i think that's what makes us special and unique uh and, and that's what drives me. And I'm so comfortable saying that. I'm so comfortable expressing it in any room. Uh, I encourage people to be explicit with their love, you know, how they share it and they manifest it. You know, this is love. You know, the presentations were love. The papers that we write are love. You know, the, the talks we give are love. Because we know how important this knowledge and understanding is to making the lives better for people. You know, whether it's people that look like us or not, it doesn't matter. It's still all love. So yeah. that is the core message of my career is that I love, this is how I show my love. I got This that. is how, you know, yeah. I, yeah, this is how I show my love. So I want to ask you another question. You mentioned something about the Virtues Project. Yes. And one of the things, you also said earlier that everybody is a storyteller. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to unpack both of those things a little bit. So when you talked about the Virtues Project, you said you... You and your mom are both trained as practitioners in in virtues. Yes, yes, yes. So the Virtues Project came out of Canada, I want to say, in the early 90s. Actually, some of the founders of the Virtues Project were former Imagineers with Disney. Yeah. And um, they were very concerned about the upticks in violence among youth in uh, Canada. So they came up with the Virtues Project. And the Virtues Project consists of, I'll I'll try to do my best to remember all this, there are five core components of the Virtues Project. So it's based on positive psychology. And positive psychology is basically there are no bad people, they just do bad things. Everyone's good inherently. So the Virtues Project uh, focuses on first speaking the language of virtues. So it's really orienting um, the words you say to be not the presence of negativity but just a reduction in positivity so it's not that you're doing x and y because you're a bad person but because you're not exuding these positive qualities enough so to do engage in a positive behavior your virtues need to be at this level so we encourage you as opposed to not doing this it's like increase your virtues and you'll get there yeah uh so recognizing teachable moments is another one so again teachable moments are all over the place and it's like do you use that opportunity to scold somebody, to criticize somebody, or to encourage them to tap into their virtues just a little bit more? Yeah. Um, let me see. So recognizing teachable moments. Let's see. Speaking the language of virtues. Uh, honoring the spirit is a good one. So a lot of times when we listen to people, we already have our response figured out. Yeah. As opposed to just straight. And it's hard. It's a hard thing to do. To just listen to somebody, taking everything that they're providing, and then come up with a response. And then sometimes you don't have to respond at all. You just need to listen. Yeah. So honoring the spirit is just recognizing where a person is at that time. You know, some people are ready for the lesson. Some people are not. Um, you have to just be okay with that. And, and patience. Patience is a virtue. Um, <laughs> Literally. Patience yeah, patience is a virtue. Is a virtue. Yeah. Uh, spiritual companioning. So that's just really, uh, I, I think, really another level of honoring the spirit. You know, talking to somebody one-on-one and just listening. Uh, and letting them say whatever it is on their minds and hearts at that time. And there's one more that I'm missing, but those are the core components, and we learned this through Wombward Productions. Uh, so that is a social change organization, a professional theater company in Baltimore, Maryland. I've been a part of Wombward since I was 14. Uh, so in like the early 2000s, they really adopted the Virtues Project as part of their philosophy. So the performers became trained in the Virtues Project, and it was just a natural philosophy that we brought with us to Discover Me, Recover Me. And I think that's what makes it unique. So it's the combination of the storytelling, which we bring as facilitators. But as we're listening to the stories of those with whom we work, 
we extract these positive qualities that we hear. So we combine our, our storytelling ear with our virtues ear, and we can extract these positive qualities that we're hearing. And all we do is we just give it back to the people. So we have had people tell their stories of recovery, their stories of addiction. And the one thing we say is that even, even in the stories of addiction, where so many people consider the lowest parts of their life, there are positive aspects of your nature that can be found there. So you don't always have to look at to the recovery for the wisdom and the encouragement. You can look at the, look at the tough times. Yeah. Look at the tough times. And, you know, there are people who were talking about copping and, you know, doing this and doing that to get their fix. And they're exuding humor. They're exuding honesty. They got dignity. I'm like, so these are positive things that they are telling us about, even when they're saying this is the worst part of my life or the worst part of my journey. And particularly with people in recovery, and this is what I learned going to uh, Narcotics Anonymous meetings, you know, as a kid. A lot of people will focus their story on, you know, when I was at my lowest, I did this, 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 and like some grindy stories. Like, that's yeah. just where they were. Yeah. And then I got better. Yeah. And it's like, I, I get that. I, I solely understand being able to be honest about the road that you've taken. But I think in the recovery space, there's too much of an emphasis on that part of it. Yeah. And not enough emphasis on the positive aspects of it. Uh, even in those stories of the the hardest parts of your journey, the, the, the lowest of lows, whatever you want to call it, there's still positivity there. It didn't just start with the recovery. It's elevated because of the recovery. Because all of those challenges and barriers that you had to your life stopped you from being the best version of yourself. But they never completely went away. They may be dormant. You may not exude them as strongly as you'd like to, but they are there. So part of our uh, approach is to say, hey, we acknowledge the good in you even when you didn't. We can hear it in your story. So you, clearly it was there. And as you go through the recovery process, that gets stronger. So as much as you want to change your behavior, as much as you want to change how you think, you got to change how you feel too. And that's where we feel we come in. You know, we focus on the emotional aspects of recovery because that's important too. You have to feel good to think better, to do better. So, so now here's the challenge, right? Because mm -hmm. here you are, Johns Hopkins trained PhD researcher mm -hmm. doing this, you know, uh, I think, very interesting postdoc. It's a partnership with Kaiser and uh, Morgan State University. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's a, the question. Well, David, where's the data? David, what are the what are the evidence based or promising practices that are mm -hmm. going to be coming out of your work? Mm -hmm. Are you, David, going to turn this into an evidence based intervention and mm -hmm. get it on the NREP list? What are the what's the you know what's yeah. the, what's the exact cognitive behavioral theor the mm -hmm. theory underneath of it? Where are you and how are you navigating um, where the where the line is or is there a line? I'm still figuring that out. And that's okay. why I tell people, don't call me an expert. It's like, I, I'm, I'm still a student in this part of the game. Yeah. And these are, I think, some of the major philosophical questions of research, particularly in the United States. I'll just say westernized research, uh, particularly around arts and health, because we think of science as so static, organized, uh, with a clear construct. And we think of art as so fluid, nebulous, and just, you know, all over the place, abstract. Mm -hmm. um, but there, there's science and art, and there's art and science, clearly. I mean, to come up with an epidemiological study is an art form, as yeah. much as it is of a science. Yeah. So one of the things that I am fortunate to be able to recognize is that, you know, scientists just see the science, artists just see the art. I see both. Yeah. And a lot of times it's just saying that out loud. It's like, oh, yeah. There's a lot of oh, yeahs in my career. It's like, duh, you didn't see, you didn't see this? It's like, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that's cool, too. But at least people acknowledge it's like, okay, yeah, yeah, I can, I can see that. Um, a lot of what I do uh, are challenging the notions of, of what, to what extent do we need to understand something yeah. in order to do it. Uh, I acknowledge that. You know, the empirical method, science, is designed to understand. Like, that is our curiosity as human beings, is we want to understand why, you know, the sun shines, why there's, you know, skies blue, you know, all these, all these ma manifestations of just existence. We want to understand because that is our curiosity. But when we talk about public health and when we see the results of failed policies, intentionally racist policies, when we see... Uh, infrastructure not being conducive to certain aspects of health. Well, people are literally dying every day because of this. And yeah, we don't want to think about that because that would just make us depressed all the time. You know, as researchers, we're trying to save people. You know, what does Hopkins say? Saving millions, saving lives, millions. Well, let's just try to save one life at a time. You know, yeah. it's our millions. 
um, or save the ones right in our backyard. I won't go there. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, a, that's a different. That's a different show. Different show. Um, <laughs> Another time. Right. So, to me, from my purview, there are so many practices that lend itself to the healing aspects of public health because the word heal is in health that we aren't doing because we don't understand it enough to whatever standard we've been conditioned to believe is the standard to say, okay, now we know how it works. Now we have permission to use it. We are so far past that with a lot of things. We can't afford to figure out exactly how and why it works in order to do it. Um, And I don't even know how necessary it really is in a lot of cases. Um, and, And what I have experienced just in the past few years is that dynamic. So it's hard for me to tell people why storytelling works. The best thing I can say is just do it. Experience it and you'll know. Um, As a scientist, I I will do my best to honor my training and honor, obviously, that side of myself to explain it to the scientific community because it's worthy of being chronicled. And maybe that's, I think that's the way I think about it. Like, I'm not doing this to to help you understand. I'm doing it to chronicle it because it's worthy of being chronicled as much as, uh, storytelling is, is appreciated in art. Storytelling needs to be appreciated in science, too. And I'll do that for that reason. But Well, it's important for another reason that might have escaped you, and it actually just hit me, mm-hmm. which is if you look in the recovery community, and I'm very related to what's happening in Maryland and Michigan, mm-hmm. right? I haven't been in both of those places. Much of what people need in recovery, mm-hmm. there's no way to pay for it. Right. Much of what people need, there's no way to pay for mm-hmm. it. So, you know, there's a course of treatment. If you break your leg, mm-hmm. you get a, you know, they cast it, sat it, right. et cetera. You get some pain meds. You're allowed to go to for follow-up care, get the cast removed. Then you're allowed a certain amount of physical therapy mm-hmm. sessions and all of that. We still have not quite gotten parity in the behavioral health world. Right. And so, you know, there are things like we start medication when people are in the emergency department and you can get this much this length of stay inpatient and this much outpatient and all of that but then when you get to that point where like the cast is coming off mm-hmm. with the broken leg we that that area is not as well defined for us and it's not as well supported right and so being able to say and so what happens is much of what we see in recovery oriented systems of care and in the whole peer recovery movement is done with a volunteer force. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which is also problematic for people and, and sometimes can be um, very dehumanizing because here are people who are relative experts in their own lived experience and in the and in the experience and the needs and the, you know, have deep compassion for other people in that process. Right. And there's no way for them to even be acknowledged or honored as a critical member of a workforce yep. that supports that, yeah. right? And oh, so, and so I think about you know you say it works and and you want people to come and you want people to experience it, mm-hmm. but I do sort of kick the the can back over to you to say, mm-hmm. well, you are in a very unique position oh, yeah. because you've got that right, like mm-hmm. you know it, you know in your bones this works, yeah. this is a good thing, and I'm sure you've got lots of stories and examples that you could give us Mm -hmm. of how that's working and how it's empowered people who then empower other people. The question is, is this something that you can take outside of just David and the folks that David touches? Like when I think about as a scientist, there are a lot of things that you know, Mm -hmm. right? So you know the the person facilitating the conversation Mm -hmm. matters. Yeah. What are the, the qualities and the characteristics? Mm-hmm. It sounds like you do have some good content that you've developed in mm-hmm. that you link and extract positive virtues and language mm-hmm. out of what people are saying. Right. Do you see yourself continuing? I know you say, don't call me an expert <laughs> just yet. Right. But in many ways, you're the closest thing we've got to an right, expert, right? right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I understand. Sometimes that. you don't, you know, we don't have to qualify you. Right. The calling has qualified you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you going to really be moving this work forward so that this is something that as we deal with all the moving pieces and all the gaps mm-hmm. in honoring and really meeting the needs of our recovery community, mm-hmm. are you are you going to be doing the work to, to move storytelling into a world where it, it, it is something that maybe mm-hmm. we can start to point to and not say it works because 
we have a good feeling about it, but it works because we also have some good science and data behind it. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it's I, I definitely want to fly the flag of storytelling and just show its value, not only as a healing practice with recovery and recovery from all forms of trauma, whatever the case may be and whatever manifestation that looks like, but, but as a research methodology too, and it showed that the combination of statistics and stories presents the best data or the best story, presents the best story, uh, overall message and narrative of how we understand this world in which we live. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's the point for me. So it's not to discourage quantitative research and to say, oh, you're doing it wrong. It's no, there's so much more you can add to the story that you're producing that would help a much larger audience understand it. Yeah. And there's nothing, and it, and it doesn't take away from your skill, it doesn't take away from your prestige as a scientist. All it does is add to it. And it makes you more valuable, not just to your institution, but to the people itself. And you become more of a bridge uh, between the research institutions and the populations that we're charged to serve. And that's the other thing, is reminding them that we are charged to serve people. Public health, public, meaning people. <laughs> you know, that is the point of what we do, is to serve the people. And they should be an integral part of this process and not just the subjects that we quantify. Because that takes so much of their humanity, too. And that's that's one of the questions I, w I would ask the clients, uh, I think, right at the beginning. I would say that if I was purely looking at you in a quantitative way, I would sum you up by your race, your age range, your sex, and the fact that you are a former drug user. And I would ask every one of them, is there more to you than that? They'd all say yes. And I like that's what I want to honor. Because there's so much knowledge and understanding that we aren't getting because we aren't allowing people to tell their stories. And maybe that scares us because we don't know where their stories will go. Mm -hmm. But we're smart enough to be able to navigate that, and we're human enough to navigate. So as a combination of your innate skills as a human being and then the skills you acquire as a scientist, like this shouldn't be scary to us anymore. We can manage stories. We can honor them. We can uh, illustrate them. We can quantify them to an extent. Uh, to say that, hey, this story has, has been consistent or common across all these groups of people. There must be something to it. And then apply that in ways that only elevates the practices that we're already using within public health. So that cultural, and it should be, improved, should be embedded in the ways that people are li living, period. That's the cultural wave of public health that's coming. So all this knowledge now needs to be part of the regular practices of people. And that's how we get the cultural change that leads to the improved health that we want to see for people. What do you think we could be doing? And I'm this is as I think about who would be listening um, to this to this um, podcast. Mm -hmm. I I think what would be the call to action for academics? As an example, one of the things that we often face in academia, you know, because you t you're talking about engaging people, meeting them where they are being a participant in the process yourself, mm -hmm. right? So you're not doing storytelling to them. Right. You're bringing storytelling to them in a way that empowers them to tell their story mm -hmm. and to heal. Mm -hmm. And you, I'm assuming, in that process are also healing. Probably more the, than this. Yeah, right? <laughs> and the, right? So it's this, it's this yeah. shared... So this is what I tell researchers to do. So I've, I've had the chance to, to teach a class at Hopkins in the Summer Institute for Mental Health for the last two years. And it's been doctors, uh, it's been medical students, it's been uh, public health professionals, uh, some uh, researchers. So it's been a nice potpourri of public health and, and you know, medical science or all that kind of stuff. The number one thing I tell them that they can do wherever they are, you know, whatever their career looks like, is to tell their story. So one of the things that I would do, um, I would walk around Hampton House a lot just to, you know, get my mind off of work. But couldn't go home because I had to get to work. <laughs> um, and I would think, and I would see the names of people's offices and say, "Oh, hmm, Dr. Zandy, you know, Dr. Bradshaw, blah 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 blah." I'm like, I wonder why they're doing what they do. You know what I mean? Like with you, it's clear why you do it. Like your story is an elemental part of why you're doing this work. But if I were to go to random researcher at Hopkins and ask them, "Why do you do this?" I think it would take them a while to answer that question. Because it's like, when's the last time anyone's asked you that? Why do you do what you do? And to me, one of the more powerful things to build connection with any audience is to put yourself out there. So if a researcher, and, and part of the assignment, so, you know, I'm not big into grading, but of course I had to grade this course and provide an assignment. This is really supposed to be experiential. Like, I just want y'all to be here and experience this. But I would tell them, give me 
a scenario in which you would be presenting research to a non-scientific audience. So they, they don't know the jargon, they don't know all the particulars of the science like you do, but you have to convey how and why this science is important to them. And I said one of the quickest ways you could do that is to tell the people why you're doing this in the first place. Yeah. So I tell people why I got into research. I got into research because I'm a black man from East Baltimore. The opportunities that were presented to me through my parents and my extended community allowed me to uh, be protected against so many of the societal ills that were literally on the next block. It could have been me. I've had colleagues, uh, well, contemporaries, I'll call them contemporaries, friends, who used to be friends, that have fallen for that. Yeah. It could have been me. Yeah. But it wasn't. And what and it bothered me that it was just me and my sister. I'm like, I know some of the kids on my block were just as smart as I was, just as insightful as I was. Why didn't they get the shot? Yeah. So for me, it was like trying to almost rectify what felt like a, a existential wrong. Like more people should have this chance to be the best that they can be. Um, and hey, I'm still in a city that birthed me, that raised me, and I can see how it's gotten worse in a lot of ways. But I can also see why it's gotten better in a lot of ways. And it's just trying to, again, understand this grand equation uh, to help improve the lives of people in my city, most of which look like me. Yeah. That's why I do what I do. So just a simple story to show that your heart is in this. It's not just your mind, but your heart is in this. gives you so much more credibility. It gives you so many more points of connection. Um, and it makes your research that much more valuable. You know, so even, to, you know, to, so this is what I used to do with tobacco all the Like, who does tobacco all the It's like a handful of us that do this research. So I would ask people, think about where you grew up and think about how far you would have to walk or drive to buy a pack of cigarettes. So I would get, and, you know, obviously in my, in my purview, I'm looking, obviously I'm looking at the, the composition of the audience. It's like, okay, so a lot of the whiter kids are saying like, oh, a few blocks, a mile, mile and a half. The more black and brown folk are saying down the street block over, a couple feet, and I asked them, you ever wonder why that is? So just simply putting themselves in my research gives them almost, uh, gives them a connection to it. And now it's like, okay, well, let me explain the science as to why these things show up the way they do. Something that simple, it, it makes it relevant. That's what it is. It's all about the relevance. And a story introduces context and relevance to your audience. So even if they've never cared about tobacco outlet density before, even if they've never picked up a cigarette before, now they understand the relevance of why their environment may look the way that it does, whether or not it directly affects them. Yeah. Storytelling does that in a very simple yet powerful and, like you said, cost-effective way. Yeah. Okay, great. So so would you tell researchers this works, this is worth us sticking with and continue to add um, credibility for in the academy? Yes. And one of the things that's been very encouraging have been those professors and faculty and administrators that have bought in. Um, you know, I don't know if they're buying in just because it's me that's that's promoting this or if they've had the experience themselves and it just took the right person to kind of activate it. Yeah. But whatever the case is, I appreciate it. Uh, so it's given me the encouragement and, and the fuel to keep doing it. So for me, I want to I want to do the re I want to continue to do the research. I want to build the literature around this as a way of chronicling it and helping scientists really understand it. Like I get y'all, y'all scientists, y'all want to figure stuff out. I'm gonna help y'all figure this out. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, challenge them to not put so much emphasis on that, and put also fair emphasis on the application of it. So, at what point would you feel comfortable using this? Maybe not as comfortable as you'd like to be, but you know there's something there that should give you the okay to like, okay, let's do this. And maybe it's just something that we have to do that create more opportunities to research it. I think that's yeah. part of it as well. It's like you can't research something out of nothing and then do it. It's like you got to do it to be able to figure out the questions that researchers can now answer. And I think that's part of it too. You know, and that's, I've definitely gotten more questions. I've gotten some answers, but more questions, which is good. So now I have all these points that I can start to address and think about the applications, what aspects of public health. Public health is everything. It doesn't necessarily work for, I mean, it may not be as relevant for uh, immunology or microbiology as it would be for, say, mental health or behavioral health. But maybe there is some applications, so let's think about that too. So the different worlds and dimensions that public health covers, I think, is ripe for taking into consideration not just storytelling, but art and culture in, in its purview and in its realm and how it can elevate the, the, the research and the practices that are already being generated from various institutions and people too because it's not just the institutions it's the people that are doing the work on the ground that are generating a lot of 
data, a lot of information, a lot of practices that need to be honored and respected and looked at. I got it. <laughs> David, it's been a joy, a pleasure, a treat to thank be with you. Thank you. Thank I'm you. looking forward to continue great things from you. Thank you. You want to close us out with a story? <laughs> one you'd like to tell us as an outro? Oh, man, let me see. Yeah, so I'll, I'll tell my I'll tell my story. Uh, this is the story that I got from my mom. I'll admit that, but I tell it better, and it's now my signature story. <laughs> but I tell it because it just it, ca- it captures everything. Um, it it really embodies why this matters. And, and again, you know, I've gotten very lovey dovey since I've had a kid. I guess that happens, <laughs> you know. But it's but it's a good feeling. It's actually good to be vulnerable. Um, and I knew a time when I wasn't, and to be able to share, like crying in front of people, I used to never do that. And I don't mind crying in front of people, like. Is, is so refreshing for my soul. Yeah. Um, and, and this story, you know, really embodies why, the why, just the why. Yeah. All right. So there was an elder woman, and every day this woman would walk through the forest. She would take in the sights, the sounds, the taste, the touch, the smell of the forest. When she walked through it, it was, she was one with God. Like, that was how God spoke to her was through these pilgrimages through the forest. So as she was doing this daily walk through the forest, she came across a stone. And as an elder woman, she's seen things, she's done things, so she has this wealth of knowledge. So she knows stones. But there was something special, some impressions about this stone. And she just couldn't walk away from it. So she picked it up, she put it in her pouch, and she just kept walking. So she came across a young man as she was continuing her journey through the forest. He was coming from the opposite direction. And as he got closer, it was clear the trauma that he was experiencing or had experienced. Because he looked tired. Like, you could see the tiredness. You could see the hunger. You could see the thirst. You could see that he was so deprived of a lot. He finally connects with the elder woman. He asks the man, do you have anything I can eat? You got any food on you? Can, can you help me? Just can you help me? And as he was pleading uh, with the elder woman for any help that he could get, he caught that precious stone. And he just stopped. Because that became like his whole attention was that stone. So he asked the man, forget everything I just asked. Can I have that stone? She didn't think about it. She didn't hesitate. She took it out of her pouch, gave it to him, kept walking. Didn't even give him a chance to say thank you. She just kept walking. So the elder woman is going in one direction. The, the young man is going in the opposite direction. And he's thinking, this stone just answered all my prayers. I'll never be tired again. I'll never be thirsty again. I'll never be hungry again. Any trauma, any pain that I've experienced, all in the past. But after a while, he stopped right in his tracks. And he just kind of stood there. It was almost like an epiphany that just made him like dumbfounded. It's like he just had to stand there and just take it all in. Um... And after a while, he turned around. He was able to catch up with the elder woman who was still walking. When he finally caught up with the elder woman, he asked her this question. Ma'am, may I have whatever it is inside of you that allowed you to give me this stone so freely? And the reason I love that story is because it is just a prime example of how who we are as people can be the most important thing we can ever give someone. Um, you know, they say the best ability is availability. Half the battle of being a parent is just showing up. Yeah. That stuff is true, man. <laughs> it's so true. You know, just being there and being yourself. Like, I used to have issues with who I was as a person. I didn't think it was cool enough. I didn't think it was what the women liked. You know, all that kind of, all that kind of stuff. So I used to have identity crises and, like, do I need to portray this person to be what everybody likes? And it wasn't until really my senior year of high school, that I was like, you know what? I finally embrace who I am. This is who I am. This, And then it became easier. Like, it's hard to fake being someone else. Yeah. Like, I guess I, I respect for actors because that's what they do. Um, but if you're not getting paid for it, <laughs> it's hard to do to be someone that you're not. And once I started embracing who I was, life became easier, and I still got what I wanted. Yeah. You know, so it's like that story to three visitors. You brought love into the house. You still got the wealth and understanding. You know, when I became who I, like, accepted who I was, I got the friends. I got the notoriety. I got the opportunities. I got the love. You know what I mean? All that kind of stuff. Uh, so the best thing I could be was myself, and that was the biggest gift I can give to the world is who I am as a person. And it's not just me, the artist, and me, the researcher, and the, all, that, all those titles, but just I try to be someone who loves, 
I try to my best to be honest. I try my best to be diligent, uh, patient. I try my best to be uh, thoughtful. I try my best to be, you know, grateful. All those things are what makes. That's what I want people to remember about David. You know, not not the PhD and not all that kind of stuff. He loved. He was honest. He helped. He was grateful. If that's all people remember of me. I'm good. Those are my precious stones. All right. So be a good brother. Dr. David Fakunle, thank you for being at the forefront with me. I love you for now and evermore. All right.